And take your Bibles again and open them and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. As I said in the email to the covenant folks earlier this week when we sent out the text so that you could read ahead, I last week preached from Genesis 13, and so you see in the bulletin insert the thesis of this passage is a further, more full prophecy of that, that little seed prophecy that we considered last week in Genesis 3, 15. And that's the way with the Old Testament, with indeed the whole Bible, little by little, God unfolds his truths. And right there, central to the unfolding of the truths is the promise, the promise of this this one that would come and crush the head of the serpent. The one who would, would dash principalities and powers and save his people from their sins. And so little by little, through all the chapters, in all the books of the Bible, we learn more and more and more. And here in Isaiah chapters 9 we learn a good deal more about that seed of Genesis 3.15. Now let me, before I read, set the context. If you, if you look above chapter 9, you'll find chapter 8. That should be no surprise to anyone. 8 comes before 9, usually. And in chapter 8, you'll see in your Bibles that it says something like this at the head inserted by editors, not divine, but in this case, accurate. It says something like the coming Assyrian invasion. So God prophesies here that the Assyrians are coming. Why? Because they've not kept the Sabbath day. They've not honored God. They've not loved him. They've not pursued him. They have put their trust in all the surrounding nations, all the peoples of the earth. They have run to the nations instead of to God with every need they have. So God says, okay, you want them? I'll give them to you. Just like when they asked for a king way back, and he didn't give them David initially, he gave them Saul. You want a king like the nations? I'll give you one. And they got one. And it was not pretty. So they want to put their trust in nations? All right, I'll send you a nation. Assyria is coming. But then, as we saw when I was preaching through Isaiah, with all these promises that come of, re- of rebuke, of retribution, because they've sinned, because they've not followed after God with their whole heart, tucked away in the middle of all those, God comes back and gives them reminder of the seed promise a reminder that he has a people he has a remnant and he's going to take care of them and that's where we are in chapter 9 when he says in verse 1 but there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali In the latter time, he has made glorious 
the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior is in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Four. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Father, thank you for that truth, and we pray now that you might use this brief time to change our hearts, to melt away all that troubles us, all that keeps us from a pure and undefiled love for you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I prayed in the pastoral prayer, this is a time of the year when often there's sadness. Sadness because of memories of loved ones who have died. Sometimes that's, that's great sadness because perhaps those loved ones died unbelieving. Perhaps not as sad because they died in Christ, but sad. Um, sometimes the contemplation of the aging process around Christmas, when you when you, you, you see the children having fun, you see the, the young folks still able to drive 24 hours straight through snow and ice and arrive at their destination and not have to go to bed and just keep on ticking. And you remember those days. Some of you are like, no, I never had those days. Well, I did. Bradley Clout did. He and I can still do 18 hours straight, but 24 is a little much. And you realize the Bible's true. Our days are appointed. There's coming a day when we too shall cease to sit in these chairs and roam these halls. Uh, Perhaps it's a sad time for some because they reflect upon failed marriages. Um, Christmas can also be a time of cynicism. And this is not, this is particularly a problem, not so much for the world, but for Christians. 
I mean, if you're honest, it's easy to become cynical. I mean, when, when I went into Chick-fil-A on November the 5th, and they were putting up Christmas decorations, and I said, what happened to Thanksgiving? And they didn't have a clue what I was talking about. It's easy to be a little cynical. What what are we doing? What's a red-nosed reindeer got to do with anything anyway? And all of a sudden, instead of enjoying, we can just hate it. And we can miss the joy and the wonder and the awe of Christmas because of what the world's doing. Right? If, I, if, if we were Baptists, there'd be a house full of amens right now. And so sadness and cynicism can set in at Christmas time because the culture is co-opting it, it's commercializing it, and we can have a negative attitude, but we have to, as Christians, not let the world influence us. We say that year-round, don't we? No, don't let the world influence. Don't let the culture creep into the church. But then we do. Not in this case. We don't let it creep in in a negative sense. We let it take the positive away. So instead of going ahead and enjoying our families and enjoying giving to people, enjoy receiving from people, enjoy doing for people, we just don't. And we lose. And so in a, in a strange sort of way, we let the culture influence us when we shouldn't. We should look beyond all those things, beyond all the failures, but beyond all the losses, beyond all the trite depreciations of Christmas that come from the world. And we need to remember what, or rather, we need to remember who this is all about. And it's interesting, isn't it? That if, we'll, if we focus on who it's about, Jesus Christ, we'll have the most fun and we'll give more generously than if we did it for commercial reasons. Because it's out of the love of Christ that we give year-round. And so, this is Christmas. And we're not like John Lennon. And you listen to, so, and so this is Christmas, and you listen to the rest of it, and you're, you, you, you hear the cynicism and the hopelessness and the despair and the worldliness. We're not like that. And so this is Christmas, and it should be a time when we look to Christ, and all of a sudden we look beyond all the silly superficiality of the world. And we look to the eternal things, and we enjoy 
So let's remember the historical reality of Christ at times like this. Some of you are sitting there thinking he's going to say virtually the very same thing when Easter rolls around. Because I've been saying virtually the same thing when Easter rolls around for the past 15 years. And you're right. If I'm living and breathing, I will. And we should. We should look to Christ, to the historical reality. Don't let the world steal the historical reality that a child was born and a son was given. Don't let them take that away from us. Now, on the other hand, the Jews of Jesus' day, they acknowledged the historical reality that this Jesus had been born. They knew where he had been born. We read in the Luke account, Joseph is going to register. They would have a legal record that he was born. They didn't have any doubt that this Jesus that was roaming the streets and the hillsides, walking the roads between the little towns all over Judea, Galilee, he was real. Nothing could change that for them. Many people today, in the midst of all this that we've been talking about, that can so easily take our joy away, many people accept that Jesus was a historical figure. I mean, if they read the, the secular historians of the period surrounding, they would be fools to deny that someone named Jesus really lived. And by the way, this someone named Jesus really lived and he did things that nobody could explain. That's part of the history books. Not just this history book, the Bible, but even other books. Not inspired of God, but historically faithful. Many people living today accept the historical reality of Jesus. Many accept that he was a good moral example. Many will even celebrate. I, I watched an old rerun last night of a Dean Martin Christmas special. Now, almost everyone in here is too young to know who Dean Martin was. But he had his good friend, Frank Sinatra, join him. And they sang about Jesus. And they even got rather syrupy and teary-eyed at points singing about Jesus and thinking about little children and a cuddly little baby somewhere in a terrible, musty, cold, damp place. But I would submit But what people really need to know is that, yes, that's the reality, but, but more than that, they need to know the things that this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 tell us about who that, that poor little cuddly, poor, underprivileged 
baby was. And this passage tells us who he was. We sang about who he was and who he is in Psalm 22 just a few minutes ago. So let's look at this. God has began the chapter by saying there's going to be no gloom for these people, even though the Assyrians are coming. I'm going to do something special. They're going to be in a dark time, but I'm, 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 they're going to see a light. And by the way, he's not just talking about Judah here. Did you notice that in the very first paragraph in chapter 9? He says that in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All of a sudden we've gone Gentile. That was always the promise, right? The promise to Abraham was not to Jews alone, Hebrews alone, but it was to nations He would be the father of nations, and here you see. And these people who have walked in darkness are going to see a great light. And notice how the the prophet writes it. He writes it as though it's already real. It's a prophecy, but it's written as though it's already accomplished. Why? Why? Because in God's decree, in God's eternal mind, his infinite mind, it is. It's as certain as though it had already happened, as though Christ had already come, as though the light of the world had already shined. It was just that certain right here when he said it. Because what God says will happen in his time, in the fullness of time. And it goes on. You multiplied the nation. You're going to be the one who who breaks the enemies. And then he gives us the reason for it. What's the ground? What's 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 the groundwork for the foundation of what the prophet is saying here? What's going to be... That which brings all this about that makes this so real. Which right there in the little word for in verse six, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given. That's how these people could know this is going to happen. Not only for Judah, but for the surrounding peoples. Isn't it interesting? The people they're depending on. The people that are going to come and assault them. God's going to make his people out of them. Remarkable. I want us to focus on verse 6. Very briefly. Notice first, to us a child is born. We've read about that child being born wrapped in swaddling cloths in the manger. But notice who that child is. It's the son. Son is given. This is what Jesus testified to in his whole earthly ministry. I came from the father. 
the Father sent me. It's right here. Don't miss it. We talk about the child being born. And we can get all caught up in the child being born. And all of a sudden it becomes kind of, oh, aren't they cute? Babies are cute. And they are. And we've got a whole bunch of little cute babies around here right now. And we have more coming. And we're very blessed and thankful for that. But what's the significance of this child? The significance of this child is that he was given. He's the son. And this is not telling us that it was going to be a boy child. This is telling us it's going to be the God child. A son is being given. The eternal son of God. The one that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. The one that was promised in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. The one that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That there would be a king that would be born of David. That would rule on the throne of David forever. This is who that son is. That's why this child is significant. And that's the only reason that the rest of this could make any sense. The government should be upon his shoulder. All of a sudden, you're moving quickly, aren't you? You're making, these are huge, big leaps. All of a sudden, you've gone from a baby in a manger to the government should be upon his shoulder. That's not what we usually think of. We think of nursing and bottles and diapers and and then maybe no diapers and no bottles and but still baby food and but not here we got a child born and because he's the son of god the government will be upon his shoulder we just jump straight to it right into the middle of who he is and what he's going to do. He's going to rule. That's his kingship being announced. All of a sudden, this is the king. And these people have a pretty shabby king at this time. This was a really great promise. And then it gets better. His name should be called. Let's talk about his name. Anytime in the Bible you start talking about names, it's, it's important. Last night, one of the passages we read was Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name will be called Emmanuel, because he's going to be God with us. So when you read that, his name shall be, perk up, it's kind of like kiddos, it's kind of like that word behold. When you see the line in, a, in the Bible, his name shall be, just get ready. Something important's coming. What's the first? Wonderful counselor. Now I realize there are some, in fact, I heard R.C. Sproul just this past week in one of his ultimate uh, podcast episodes that they're, they're generating these days say that he believes it's wonderful and it's counselor. It's too distinct. 
He doesn't do that with the rest of these, but with that first one he does. And, and I understand. But I'm going to go with the preponderance, the great majority of Old Testament scholarship, which says that all these are couplets, that they're adjectival, and that they stay together, and, and that's where we'll land this morning. He's a wonderful counselor. Now, don't think wonderful in the sense that we use wonderful these days. Oh, that was a wonderful meal. Some of you said that several times yesterday. And Carol, when we said it, we meant it. That's not what's being said here. This is not just a, oh, he's a wonderful counselor. Isn't he a wonderful man? Isn't she a wonderful woman? No, this is in the true etymological sense. He will be full of wonder. He will be full of awe. He will be full of surprises. He is going to tell you things that he had no way of knowing unless he was God. He's going to help you in ways that no other human being could have helped you. Isn't that what we read about Jesus in the New Testament? You remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? This man has told me things about myself that no one else could know. No one should know this. He must surely be the Messiah. Because he was full of wonder. If you weren't here last night, I'm sorry. We had a grand time. But I'm sure you were providentially hindered or you would have been here. I began by reading from Judges 13, which is not one of your typical Christmas readings. It's about Manoah and Mrs. Manoah and about the, the, the announcement of the birth of their son. She was barren, unable to have children, and she was going to have a child. And she, she told her husband, and he said, I'll have to hear that for myself. He said, well, the, the, this man of God, I don't, he just appeared and he went away. I don't know where he is. Well, maybe he'll come back, and he did. And Manoah says, hey, can we detain you? Would you like to stay and have supper? He says, I can't eat your food. Then Manoah says, and so what's your, what's your name? He says, what, you, you want to know my name? My name is Wonderful. And then they offered a sacrifice and they fell on the ground. And then Manoah says, we're going to die. We shall surely die for we have seen God. That was a statement of truth, but a statement of doubt. Mrs. Manoah immediately says, we will not surely die because he's just given us great news. I'm going to have a child. I can't have a child if I die. She believed. She got it. But Manoah was right too because God had said no one will see God and live. 
but they did. See God, the angel of the Lord, and he performed a wonder, not just the wonder of telling them what was going to happen with this barren womb of hers, but as they offered the, the sacrifice, the flame went up to heaven, and the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame, in the sacrifice. Now, if you can't figure out the imagery there, the sacrifice being offered, the flame ascending to heaven, the angel of the Lord ascending to heaven, and miracles proceeding from what he said. Well, come back later and we'll explain it. But that's the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. And his name is wonderful. And here we're told that he is a wonderful counselor. He is the best advisor you can have. So how do we get his advice? Well, we read his Bible. We listen to preaching, faithful preaching of God's word. Not social commentary, not political harangue. Preaching of God's word faithfully. And we pray. That's how we gain his counsel. That's where he speaks to us. Is in the reading and preaching of his word. He's our wonderful counselor. But he's a wonderful counselor. Oh, and by the way, I have to say this. And I can't go into detail on this. And I think I said last night I would. But time is fleeting. This is really Isaiah telling us that this is, this is the greater Solomon. You remember Solomon? All of the counsel he gave, the wisdom, and the queen of Sheba came because she had heard about all this great counsel that no mortal man could do this. Well, a mortal man did because he, he was gifted by God. But here... This man's going to do it. This son's going to do it. This child's going to do it because he is God. Not because he's gifted by God, but because he's the mighty God. Literally, he's the God Almighty. That can leave no doubt, right? How's he going to be so wonderful in his counsel? How's his counsel going to be so superior to anything you can gain from other people, from the surrounding nations even? Because he is almighty God. He's the son of God. You say, wait a minute, that's different. Being son of God and being almighty God. No, it's not. Remember what the Jews, they got, they got it right. You claim to be the son of God and they wanted to stone him to death. And why? Well, they say why. Jesus says, hey, I just said I'm the son of God. And you want to stone me? Yeah, because you claim to be God. They understood. And we should understand. The son, who is the mighty God, is the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we've got a, a bit of a queer one here. The everlasting father. Wait a minute. He's the son who's given. Yeah. His relationship to the father is a son, but his relationship to you and to me is fatherly. We don't have any trouble 
And this is where a human example comes in handy. They don't always hold up well. This one comes in handy. Don't push it too far. But I'm a son. But I'm also a father. I was a son to Lewis Chalmer Wilborn. And to Nadine Wilborn. But I'm a father to Sophie and Kaz and Ian. And I'm a grandfather to Edmund and Evie. I had to put that in there. He's a father. Jesus is a father to us. This is how one of the finest commentators of recent time, this is how he said it. He says, he says, when father is used of the Lord, it points to his concern for the helpless. Psalm 68, verse 5. It points to his care and his discipline for his people. Psalm 103, 13. Proverbs 3, 12. Isaiah 63, 16. Isaiah 64, 8. And it points to their loyal, reverential response to him. We, we respond to Jesus like we would respond to our godly, earthly fathers. With great reverence. With obedience. As the founder and perfecter of our faith, he acts as a father toward us. And one of the wonderful ways he acts as a father toward us is in sending the Holy Spirit to discipline us, to guide us, to teach us. So don't think here that this is undermining the triunity of God when it says that Jesus is the everlasting Father. It's just speaking in terms of his relationship to us, not his relationship to his Father in the triune Godhead. And then finally, he's the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Jesus claimed this very thing. In John 20, verse 26, to the doubting disciples, he said, peace be with you. The only reason he could give peace is because he was peace. He had earned peace for them. Remember, they were enemies with God, just as you and I are enemies with God. But Jesus Christ reconciled us with God. He's the peace giver and the peacemaker. Remember that wonderful verse in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not just the source of peace. He's the one that administers peace. He's the prince. He has the power he has the authority to make that peace effectual in us. Paul says in Philippians that that peace is a peace that passes comprehension. If you're in Christ Jesus today, you've experienced that. In the midst of some horrible family situation. In the midst of some horrible medical announcement. 
in the, in the, in the midst of something so terrible. And there is this peace that settles upon your heart, that overcomes all your questions, and you can't, you can't explain it. And nobody can understand how you can possibly live through this terrible thing that's just happened to you. It's the peace of God. Because the Prince of Peace brought it to bear upon your heart and your mind. One last thing about this peace. And we should never forget this. We're reading about the Prince of Peace in the context of the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word for peace is an all-encompassing, comprehensive word. I'm just going to give you the short version. It means that he is the prince of everything you could possibly need. Doesn't matter what you can think that you might need. He's the prince. He's the provider. He can do it for you. Doesn't matter what your sin is. Doesn't matter what your need is. The prince of peace. Shalom. When the, when the Hebrew said shalom to one another, he was making an announcement that I'm giving you everything you need. I'm here for you no matter what. Isn't that remarkable? We like to think, well, yes, I know God can do this. I know this and that. But, you know, I, I'm living right here, right now. And he's up there. But he's God with us. And he's the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Shalom. He can do all his holy will. He can meet all our earthly needs. It's the reason the psalmist David could say, I've never known the righteous forsaken or begging for bread. Because God does for his people. Beyond what we can even expect or sometimes even ask, even know to ask. Aren't you glad about that? Sometimes we don't even know what to ask for. And he, can, he still provides it because he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of everything we need. This is Jesus. This is what Christmas is all about. The question is, is this your Jesus? Is your Jesus the son that was given? The wonderful counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Paul says he is for all who believe and that for all who believe he will not disappoint. Father, we ask that you give us all in this place faith to believe that we wouldn't let the world rob us of Jesus This Jesus, the one true and living God. We pray this in his name. Amen.